This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Marissa. Hi, I'm Misa. Hello, I'm Brian. Hello, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about Alien, uh, the novel by Alan Dean Foster, the movie uh, from 1979, and uh, Black Destroyer by A.E. Van Vaught, and maybe Planet of the Vampires a little bit, and uh, what was the other one that you had me do as homework? Brian? Um, Hang on, that was um, another 1950s sci-fi film, um, Mm -hmm. It, The Terror from Beyond Space. Right, right. Uh, okay, so I haven't heard of either of those. Uh, maybe I'd heard of It, the Terror from Beyond Space, but I, I didn't know it had any connection to Alien. And, of course, there are other... Uh, there's another A.E. Van Vaught story that sort of is uh, part of that Voyage of the Space Beagle. I th- I've read that one as well, and I didn't find it to be super connective, but it has a little bit of connection. I think, though, um, any charges that this is a... Uh, a remake. Uh, uh, there's so many things that it could be drawing from that basically it's all a wash in, in my point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody here who read Black Destroyer, uh, it's not the same story. It's it's got some aspects that are similar, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. But it's not the same story. No. no. I will tell you there is a uh, ripoff uh, that it is uh, a ripoff that's happening in the alien universe and that is um aliens 1986 there are uh, i've i've thought about it many times watching both movies but there is a scene by scene recreation of the entire movie of alien in aliens really oh yes every scene that's in alien is also in aliens and then there are, are like a there's a couple of twists for example just looking at the out, outline, right? Um, at the end of both movies, there's a uh, uh, opening of a space hatch and a climbing into a, a spacesuit. In one case, it's a power loader suit, but it, it's a climbing in. And um, there's a scene where uh, Ripley runs down hallways carrying a uh, precious living thing in both films. Um, there is the destruction sequence in, you know, the countdown. You now have four minutes. That every everything that is in Alien is rec- recreated in Aliens in such a way that uh, they're exactly like a remake. <laughs> it's That's not funny. Just- I oh. I didn't notice that, but I went to read a little bit of the Aliens um, screenplay, and I, just when I was like reading just the first paragraphs, I was like, whoa, that is written exactly the same way as Alien Opens, like yeah. almost the same language. It, they even, like, there's so many things. Uh, there's even a betrayal, right? But it, the twist is, in the second film, it's not the robot, right? It's the company that betrays them, again, but in a different way, <laughs> a different person. And there's a the same motivation. And, in fact, uh, I watched the theatrical cut of the film. Um, I don't... I don't know if you guys saw the director's cut of uh, 1979. There's a scene that is taken out of, I believe, in the director's cut where we see um, Dallas uh, and 
the rest of the people sort of coming egg, egg, egg banks. Yeah, yeah it's, mm. it's in the novel, but not actually novelization, but it's not actually in a theatrical movie, which is what right. I saw. You, were, yeah. you broke up a little bit there. Were you saying the cocoon scene? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's removed in the director's cut, I believe. And it's, I think that actually. It's the other way around, I think. Oh, is okay. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I watched the theatrical. Whatever. Yeah. Um, it's added in the director's yeah. cut. Yeah. That scene is also in Aliens, right? There's nothing that is in Aliens that isn't in. <laughs> that's so uh, funny. I, I, actually, Jesse, when when I was rewatch after I read the listened to the audiobook and I was and I watched Aliens, I was Alien. I was thinking mm-hmm. the movie that I kept flashing forward to as far as remaking and riffing off of was Prometheus. I had not seen the movie Alien, or I had never read the actual book until now, and I had not seen the movie Alien in god-awful years. So when I first saw Prometheus back when it opened, God help me, I didn't quite realize just how much it was trying to riff off the original Alien, but now when I saw the Alien, rewatched the Alien movie, like, oh my God, Prometheus mm-hmm. riffs off Alien Six Ways to Sunday from... From the atmosphere to the aesthetic design, the ship, the the, the the curvature of the ship, the the. But wait a second, isn't it? I haven't watched it yet, but isn't it supposed to be going back to Alien and telling the story? It's of... Ridley Scott only has one story, okay? Yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> Prometheus takes place decades before Alien. It, it's just to explain right. the is explain the origin of the of the predators uh, of the predator aliens and and. And but it, it's really telling as as I said it's really telling that same story. I mean the technology is harder is higher, but we get exploding exploding ships, a betrayal by the android, the whole nine yards. I mean what? Yes, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean I can't recommend anybody watch Prometheus. It's not a movie I can recommend to anybody, especially the rolling ship of doom where people can't learn how to go go lateral. But I digress. But yeah, it's it's it's, it's really like really this how I want to tell the same story over and over again. Wow. Well, it's kind of appropriate we're recording on Easter Sunday because it, it is kind of that kind of story, you know. Yes, <laughs> a it's story. an Easter egg hunt. It is an egg hunt. <laughs> 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 I was thinking There's resurrection. A of it, uh, year after year and century after century. Um, I don't think we can escape the story. And I think uh, it's a, also like the reason it all works. The reason the novel, I think the novel's pretty good. Um, I I think the movie is astounding. And I looked at the ratings on uh, Alien and Aliens on IMDb. And you can't really trust modern uh, movies being rated, you know, if you go look at Captain Marvel this week, it's different from what it was last week. But older movies, they tend to stay fairly stable in their ratings. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Alien 1979 is 8.5 on IMDb, and uh, it's 8.4 for Aliens. Um, so, and then it, there's a steep drop uh, down to 6.3 for Alien uh cubed or whatever it's called yeah it's i think we should just delete those from human consciousness and i think that's exactly right (laughs) they need to be deleted because they're not telling 
the essential gothic horror story that this is, right? Yeah, that's why I stopped watching the sequels and never watched Prometheus. Like after Alien Three, I was like, I'm done. You ruined it. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a per, that's a pretty solid way of doing it. But this this le- leads me to tell you the news I I saw yesterday on the internet. So, um, apparently William Gibson, you know who William Gibson is, apparently <laughs> had written a script for Alien Three. Yes. I read it back in the day. What's that? I read it back in the day. On, it was on the internet? Yeah, it never yep. got produced. Um, Audible is making a Audible drama from it. Mm-hmm. It's coming wow. out in May. Oh. Yes. And it's, Interesting. And they've, There's they've a got, comic already out of the script, and um, yeah, uh, this is sort of a trend. We've got uh, there's a Wolverine uh, podcast that got turned into a comic, and now there's a comic that's getting turned into an audio drama. So, so yeah, so that, I mean, if we had done this, this podcast a month later, we could have both listened to that as well. But yeah, I'm, it's, it's got Michael Bain and Lance Hedrickson in it too. So uh, it's not, I've read the script. It's not, um, it's not good. It's not alien. It's not not aliens. It's, it's interesting. It's probably, I would say it's better than what happened with alien cubed. Um, that's a, that's a low bar though. Right. (laughs) It's alien, alien 3 is so frustrating because you've got William Gibson in the mix, and then the director is the excellent David Fincher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's you know there's some ideas and stuff swarming in there, but it's yeah it's definitely a plunge down. I mean, it, it would be interesting that if we had done that one because of all all the Christ industry and today's Easter Sunday that we're recording us. I mean, Alien 3 kind of really presses that a little too hard for my taste. It just seems like it's it's making a point that it really can't support, but that's just me. But at least we have Alien with all the eggs and the great egg hunt. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the gothic roots of this. So Evan and uh, Brian, you guys read more gothic than me. I know that. Um, but this is a this is a haunted house story. Um, but it uses the the practical escape that this this all the horrible things that are happening are all real and inescapably true once everything's revealed. It's a haunted ship, I guess, as well as a haunted house. But um, and and the house, yeah. So the the mother is sort of the ghost that haunts the house, right? And then it has its loyal servant in Ash. Well, um, there's all kinds of, of uh, gothic goodness. I mean, you've got the um, uh, the Nostromo, uh, which is named after uh, Conrad, you know, Conrad's great novel, and there's a hint of that in, in the sequel movie. Um, well, yeah, the name of the the ship is the Sulaco. That should have been the that should have been the tip off to Ripley. This is not going to go well. Everything's going. <laughs> No. The name of the ship I'm getting on is the name of the town that Nostromo's uh, visiting. <laughs> one, one thing about this is that uh, one of the big themes of, of Conrad's novel is the corruption of money. Uh, in fact, one character is actually literally killed by gold bars uh, towards the end of it. Right, right. So that's a nice, a nice theme for the first movie, uh, and it appears in the second. But you have you have also the the haunted house of the uh, alien ship on the uh, on the planet. Um, and it follows classic haunted house logic where you go into the basement and the basement is mm-hmm. the true terror. Um, and like most American uh, haunted house, like a lot of American gothics, you blow up the uh, uh, haunted house at the end. I mean, it's just a kind of staple to do. And so we do that in the beginning. 
There's also the, I mean, you mentioned Mother, and one of the classic dynamics in Gothic that make it so appealing is that it's got this kind of twisted combination of family secrets and deviant sexuality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the ship has the good mother, but it turns out the mother is betraying them horribly. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's in, you know, there are all kinds of juicy Freudian goodness, everything from, you know, ash spurting white fluid everywhere to, uh, our heroes having to climb inside mother to find out the secret. Um, so you have all of that. Um, and on top of it, you have the deviant sexuality of the various forms of rape that the alien presents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't believe the symbology when Ripley is attacked by Ash and they're in, I, I guess it's Parker's like Nasters, one of the, one of the two engineers nest. And it, you know, there's all this pornography on the walls. And then right. he starts rolling up a magazine. And it didn't occur to me that that magazine was a pornography magazine. And he's literally jamming it, trying to jam it into her mouth to kill her. Oh, right? yeah. That was really yeah. And that yeah. is such a that's, – that's why this movie is so good. Not, not because I like that sort of thing. I'm saying it's so good <laughs> because that is paralleled by what happened earlier in the film, right? There's this uh, – you know, with um, – on the planet, right? That, and also that, with- also, what happens next uh, when the alien achieves its full adult form and its killing blow comes from a cylinder from its own mouth. Right, right. It's it. It's um. Uh, it's amazing how well thought through everything is, and obviously, everybody who's read the book compared it to the the movie. There are quite a few differences. The, that uh, liquid spurting out of all the um, uh, out of the android. They call it a robot in the book. I think they even call it a robot in the movie. But it's really it's an android, right? That's especially given the next movie Ridley Scott makes, right? Um, I think calling it a robot um, actually has a a nice political flavor to it because Alien might be the last great 1970s sci-fi movie. And um, Hollywood in the 70s had a really interesting range of politics. And Alien is definitely a labor movie. I mean, the main tension uh, between the crew is over their compensation. And okay. you have, mm-hmm. you know, Dallas as the manager stand in and you have the uh, the working class who are agitating for this. And you've got talk of labor slowdown. And, of course, the term robot, it comes from, you know, uh, Brossom's Universal Robots, Michael Chopic, which is the idea of robot as worker. Right. Yeah. So that I think is pretty nice. I had forgotten completely all about the labor relations in this in the movie in the book until so I'm like, to... let's talk about the shares. Like, wait, what? I don't remember this. That's yeah. one of Devin, because this is a this is a labor story. It's a semen story, right? Um, they, they call I think uh, somebody called it space truckers, um, and certainly they have the aesthetic of space truckers. But that's just because we're more familiar, I think, most of us with truckers than we are with semen. Um, and and the merchant merchant marine, but that's really what it is about, right? They, they they have a share system, and they care about their shares because that's how they make the pass their their sea pay. They also get a share in getting that ship to shore and with their supplies delivered. Um, in the book, it's made in explicitly clear what they're delivering is oil, right? <laughs> <laughs> in right, the movie. He changed well, it a little, they just yeah. say minerals, yeah. Yeah, there's there's kind of a, a like a banality to their presence in space, I think, which is interesting and connected to that. I mean, they're not explorers, they're not 
really scientists. They're not. I think right. there's one of scientists, but or that's actually you know, the science Ash. officer. Yeah. yeah, that's Ash. So yeah, I guess he doesn't really count, but um, you know, they are they are workers, and they're not explorers. They're not colonists, which I think in those the Prometheus they they kind of make them that that more Promethean aspect, right, of <laughs> space exploration. This is you know this universe just exists, and they're just ferrying stuff back and forth, and you know got the corporation. It's it's you know there's there's no deeper meaning to them being in space except it's just a job. I yeah. I, I did find it interesting in the book the book versus the movie. The book has that tension, like well well we could we could have had a real ship go out there, but no, we'll just divert and make sure that and have this uh, have these random people show up versus the movie where. From the movie's perspective, in the movie's universe, there aren't exploratory teams. There only are these truckers, and they just happen to get caught up in this mess. Whereas the book makes it much more clear that uh, that no, we're just we're just gonna, we're just going to expend these people rather than put out a real uh, force to actually investigate it. So that the book is even more explicit about exploitation of the workers than the than the movie is. I think I think what probably happened is this is all uh, that Dan O'Bannon's script had all this, um, and then in the paring down uh, in the edit room, and the, there are sequence like the the sequence with the um, destruction of the ship, as far as I can tell, doesn't happen in the novel in the same way. There's a number of of sequences that are missing um, in the film that are in the book, and it's not just you know filling in the details and spicing things up right. there are things that are, i think decisions that are made when um i i didn't remember it at all but i was last night i was tweeting out lines and screenshots and the the final sequence where she's in the shuttle and um getting the suit on and getting ready to blast the thing into space she's singing a little song yeah that was, that was Lucky amazing. Star, and I looked it up, and it's like a a show tune from, and she can't remember any of the lyrics. So she, it's just a great line showing how, like, I don't think the book is very good at capturing the horror of, of the breathing, you know, the horror of the body that the. Well, it's, it's Alan Dean Foster, right? And it, it, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't write horror, but the um, the. Um, to go, to go back one more point about labor, and I really appreciate Evan's comment about the banality of it, um, is this is this is quite deliberate. If you contrast this with um, uh, Star Wars, which is 1977, contrast it with uh, Star Trek, which is older but still very resonant, um, it's it's definitely I mean, it was famous at the time for being this kind of shocking vision of a very uh, grisly uh, working class but dirty future. Which Blade Runner is three years later. Will then pick up. Yeah, that's the sequel. Ends is a completely different genre. I mean, it's a military movie, um, but it carries that on because your sympathy is with the unit, not the generals. Much like your sympathy in Alien is with the grunts, with the workers, not with the uh, company. Right. Can I? Can I can it be with the company though? I mean, they're murderers. Right, they're scum, and it's interesting how that just that just persists through all the movies, even the worst sequels. Is um, you know they build a mythology around that, um, and that's I think part of the power of the film is that is that it has this 
uh, even as since 1979, we've gotten more and more unequal. We've had more and more of a plutocratic form of life in the U.S. This has become, I think this is a, has a strong, seditious flavor to it, which appeal accounts for its appeal. Well, how many years pass in those those four movies? It's hundreds of years, right? And it's the same corporations dominating this this society for you know doing the same stuff, right? Still trying to make a uh, super weapon. Feudal capitalism. Yeah. I I looked into you know one of the one of the reasons I think the film works again is because of the textual sort of feel of it. The uh, I guess the um, interactions with the computers on board the ship seem a little old fashioned, but um, other than that, I don't think it it's super. Um, I don't think it's super old looking the film mm-hmm. and i think if you look like the fact that they've all got shoulder patches which we never really get a close look at they've got little badges they've got uh coffee cups here and there they've got beer cans um you know there there's tons of little details and the fact that the company is never named in the first movie uh yeah. but is symbolized on their clothing and stuff like that that background sort of world building stuff that's going on is pretty amazing and um, I, was this filmed in the UK? I, I thought it was. I think it, it was. I know Aliens was filmed in the UK. The, the Shepherdin Studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the thing is, is uh, even like the some of the badges and stuff. If you look at it in detail or you know production details, um, it has like there's a a star with the with the UK colors uh, sort of united, and and the name of the company turns out to be Wayland Utani, and Wayland is of course a W E Y A L N D something like that, right? Yeah. Is a very very British name, um, and Utani is that Japanese sort of name, right? And so you've got uh, a company that you know traditional British company getting sort of taken over by a Japanese company, and we're living in that international um, transnational corporation future. And it's just taking it to space. So the little details is uh, in the book. I don't think I don't think it's mentioned in the in the uh, in the movie. But their ship is registered. Um, it, it's 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 it, it's flashed on the screen. It's the registered out of the Solomons. The Solomon Islands, right? Yeah. And then the Antarctica is the is the control station they're trying to call. Like just that building up of a whole world behind the story allows for when we like i didn't when we're first watching we don't know that the ship has a self-destruct sequence right we don't know that the ship has a shuttle we don't know any of these things and yet it all makes sense and it's all built in and so none of it really comes as a surprise we don't know that the the one of the officers is a robot but they don't know either which is interesting but but in the future, uh, they presumably know. So all the surprises that come to the audience are not surprises in a fake way. They're surprises in a in a legitimate way. And I think all of those things work together to make it such a iconic story that really, uh, combined with the fact that you know you've got that breathing, the whole last I don't know twenty minutes of the movie is just Ripley breathing. Running and breathing mm-hmm. and freaking and sweating and um, it's just so it's so powerful that it, you you become her essentially in the in that 
says in that section of the film. Well, it's I, I agree about world building. There's no um, there's no data dump. There's no info dump. It's all just done you know on the fly, and you you're just immersed from the start, uh, which is I think really really appealing. Um, and I, I agree cinematically. It's just every scene um, just has so many beautiful ways of either ratcheting up the tension uh, or creating atmosphere or giving you the characters and the setting. I mean, you think about the the different ways that people meet their demise. Um, you know, you get Dallas who just gets killed off screen. And you know, he's not killed. He's captured. But um, but that just, you know, the creature just extends its arms. and There's a shriek and it's gone mm-hmm. versus the incredibly gory death of, of um, one of the guys later on um, or the, you know, the famous cat cap death scene uh, for Harry Dean Stanton's character mm-hmm. um, or Lambert, you know, who is killed and pinned down in this almost spotlight. I mean, they're all remarkably harsh and different. Um, I do want to go back to one more point about the Gothic, though. Um, people define the Gothic in all kinds of ways, and they argue about it in a very friendly way. Um, but one key uh, theme is often body horror. Mm. Uh, I, I just I want to settle on that because this is one of the most squirm-inducing uh, <laughs> And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's picked up on by a lot of the rip-offs. There's a whole bunch of rip-offs. In fact, Roger Corman did two ripoffs. There is a zero budget Italian movie with the awesomely trashy title of Inseminoid. Inseminoid. What a name. I I wonder what that's about. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But one of the reasons for all this body horror is, uh, you know, the story with this, there's in many ways the great creative genius of the film that we haven't named yet. You know, so you've got Mm -hmm. this young Swiss artist who comes to the U.S. Because he wants to work with, um, you know, the very, very great Dune movie um, that, you know, Yadorovsky was making. All that falls apart. And so this young H.R. Giger is hanging out in New York. He has no money. He doesn't speak English. So he puts up some of his paintings and uh, Dan O'Bannon finds them and we plunge into the future. Um, I mean, Giger's art for this is just so extraordinary. And Giger has become a, a... I mean, he's dead now, but he became a star and, and massively influential, massively copied. But at the time when this movie came out, that look and feel was so shocking and so unsettling. So right. generous. It's like, we've never yeah. seen this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was watching a, um, one of the you know documentaries where he was speaking, and there's this funny part where he's talking about his decisions in making the – like how horrible the aliens can be. And he's talking about that body horror thing of like something inside you or under the skin, like having a worm under a human skin or or something inside your body just horrifies him. And when he's talking about it, he's literally squirming and shuddering and he can't even like keep his gaze on the camera. Cause just thinking about it is making him squirm. And uh, I guess I never thought of HR Giga squirming. something. That must be his. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. For some reason, I always see his ad as like embracing it and, and loving that kind of. That's what uh, we do, though, right? When when you're afraid of something, you you yeah. have to bring it close and cuddle with it. Otherwise, you you can't function, right? Yeah. And I, I it seems like Stephen King says the same thing, right? That he the reason he's he, he writes so much horror is because he's so afraid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, not because he wants to scare people, but he's trying to work through the fears that he has. I guess. 
And yeah, he, he says that in Dance Macabre. He has a whole yeah. several yeah. chapters on that theme. Uh, such a good book. It's such a good book. Yeah. I, I, I feel the distinct lack of um, the alien aesthetic in the in the novelization. I don't know right. if um, poor uh, Alan Dean Foster had access to the film. I think he probably didn't. He didn't. Or, or, or he didn't. Or, yeah. Because he had an early script, and that that's what we're reading is actually like the earlier version of the script with mm-hmm. like all those extra things that look like he's added them. They were all in the script, and that's what he was working from. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned somewhere that he'd like seen a few images of the aliens, but he didn't have a clear understanding of what they would look like. I want to read the um, <laughs> the first two words of the inside. Once you open the cover of the of the paperback, Marissa, these are the first two words: the thing. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's and cool. then, that's in caps, and then it says uh, the next line down is regular. Looked like the hand of a skeleton with many fingers curled into the palm. Something like a short tube protruded from the palm and something like a tail was coiled beneath the base of the hand. So, and it goes on to describe that a scene, right? What that's in the book, but, um, granddaddy behind all of this is, um, a movie that would come out in 1982. Uh, the thing, uh, based on the John W. Campbell, right? This is very Campbellian, even uh, underneath it all. And of course, John W. Campbell is sort of lifting from Lovecraft in a certain way uh, with uh, certain of his stories. I was thinking a lot about. Uh, there's a story by Lovecraft called "In the Walls of Eryx," I believe, mm-hmm. set on um, Venus. Yes, it's his only real sort of spaceship-born science fiction story. Um, and it has a it has a bit of the feel, but the horror. <laughs> I don't normally think of Lovecraft as a horror guy, but uh, if you think of what's going on in the thing in the doorstep, that's pretty fucking horrible. Um, I think of him more of as a science fiction guy or a a weird fiction guy. But really, if Lovecraft were to be translated into the visuals. Um, Giger and what's going on in this universe are pretty horrific. The the focus is not uh, on companies, right? The companies are not to blame in Lovecraft, but uh, there's some sort of disrespect of man <laughs> as a as a being. Mm-hmm. So well, did anyone I, read the um, the original script, the '76 version? No, uh, I did. Wow. No, I don't know if it's the right one. Somebody sent out a screenplay. I read that, if if that's the one you're talking about. Um, I can't remember if it was sent out, but the 76 one, like Dan O'Bannon's original one, that has more of kind of Lovecraftian stuff in it, like a lot of like religious icons that they find in the in the derelict and pyramids and even temples. No, that's not what I read. (laughs) Yeah, it's really weird. Let's so talk about aliens bit, and have tentacles and stuff. It's, let's it's talk a little strange. bit about um, the thing from Beyond Space, Brian. You you recommended it, the thing from Beyond Space. It's not really from Beyond Space. It's from everybody who hasn't seen this movie. It's basically the same plot as Alien, which is really strange. Uh, how's it go, Brian? Uh, they go to Mars and they pick up a life form, and the life form gets on board and and stalks and kills a lot of them and. 
Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's very very similar. It's interesting that the the ship acts much more like a submarine mm. design. It's it stages up and down though, and that that yep. thing the the thing about being confined to the ship. I, w- one of the things I admire in looking at Alien is, you know, it it looks very high budget, right? Uh, but what you notice is that they use everything, right? So the they use the bridge twice, they use the the um, mess hall twice, they use every place. They use the airlock a lot. Yeah, they use every place so that you know they're getting their value for money. On that, uh, it from beyond space, you've got this um, the airlocks on every deck going up and down. It's a rocket ship, right? So it, it's a sort of a Heinleinian style rocket ship where you've, instead of having that all full of fuel and tiny little capsule at the top, it's it's just decks going up and down, and there's a hatch on each, and it follows the same, uh, you know, somebody's killing people and. Uh, we got to stop it. We got to try and kill it. Uh, what I couldn't believe is they seem to have every surplus World War II uh, weapon available. They they have a bazooka. <laughs> they have oh, yeah. a crate full of uh, pineapple grenades, uh, a 1911 um, uh, automatic pistol. Right? It's it's World War II surplus on a interstellar or interplanetary voyage. But uh, what they also have is a, a crew full of men and two women. And the relationships between the men and the women is so bizarre. It's straight out of the 1950s because it's a 1950s movie. But, like, there's these scientists, these women, and they're serving lunch. <laughs> like, what the fuck? What? Like, they're pouring coffee and serving lunch, and then they're doing medicine to the guys who get knocked on the head. And wow. and there's a scene, a great scene where she's she's holding a man's head in her hand while she's I don't know, uh, mopping his brow and fixing his wound or whatever. And she says, "Yes, I was married once, but now I've devoted my life to science." Um, and while she holds his hand very lovingly, and there's a, a a similar scene where there's there's an older woman and a younger woman, and uh, she she's heading up the stairs to the next deck, and the captain puts her his hand on her her hand and you you know that they have some sort of relationship but it's not a sexual relationship it's just he's being a man <laughs> it's like what so um if you look at uh what happens in alien the original movie or 1979 movie i don't feel like women's positions in that film as it appears in the film not in the book not in the script but as it appears in the film i think that that's sort of just since 1979, women have become equal. And that, that shows I, I read an interesting thing about one of the early drafts. All of the characters were, are very, like, when, you, when I read it, when I watched it, they're very similar. Like, usually when you're watching a movie or, or reading a book, when somebody speaks, you say, oh, that's, that's, uh, right. <laughs> but, there, but there's none of that in this. They're, they're, they're interchangeable. And when they were previous to casting it, they they weren't they weren't sexed. They said, "Go ahead, cast it, do nice. what you want." And, oh. and yeah, wow. so that that came down at the end. That wasn't even written in. Wow. Um, so the only thing that is, I read that as well. The only thing was um, when I was watching the documentaries and they were talking about it, they were like. Yeah, but when we wrote that, when we said that, we didn't think they were going to change the lead. 
<laughs> so they were all interchangeable, but they never thought that the lead would be a woman. <laughs> Which is so cool that they did. And then and yeah. then they just started a whole new industry of, of kick-ass women, you yeah. know, leads. Well, also it's started a whole new industry of slasher movies, right? That's the other thing that's so weird about this movie is, is it's a, it's a, there's a killer in the house and he, we don't know who the main character is, right? We don't know that Ellen Ripley is the lead character until she's the only one left. Mm. Yeah. Right? Dallas seems yeah, to be in charge. Yeah, but the last, the last, yeah, the whole coda on the last scene of uh, Ripley, the cat and the monster is like something out of um, Sleepaway Camp or something. It uh, is. I mean, she found her being, um, you know, um, inner skivvies uh, and vulnerable in bed. Mm-hmm. Final I, I also want to point out that um, going back to that movie, it the thing from Beyond Space, um, what you left out of the description, Brian, is that the plot of Alien had already happened <laughs> at the beginning of the movie. So they we're, we're being told that this ship has gone to pick up the last survivor of an fa- uh, ill-fated expedition to Mars. So on the way back from Mars, he, he's been thought of as a murderer, right? He's right. been thought of, uh, they think he's, he murdered all the rest of the people on his sh- ship in order to survive. He, he needed the food and the oxygen and they couldn't, all live so he killed them all right right and then uh, very soon somebody starts killing everybody on the ship in the 10 little indian style that we have uh in in this film it's but, interesting that connects back to the um to the thing um you know, where, the, where the human where the aliens um portray the humans they mimic us um, but it also speaks to the name I, I i never occurred to me until watching and reading this but her name is ripley Believe it or not, right? <laughs> Believe your story or not, this is what happened. And what what we find out in the beginning of Aliens, the sequel, right, is that it, most people don't believe her. Which makes sense. The company makes- knows it's true, so well, they're willing to send her on another expedition, right? It's an incredible, but- literally incredible story. But if, if, if I can go back to what Marissa and Mice were saying um, – I mean, the, the, the gendering of this is fascinating. I mean, no one takes uh, Lambert aside and says, you can't do this because you're a girl. Um, you know, she's, you know, the, the, the scenes with her and Ripley together, if you're just, if you, if you close your eyes and just imagine those two characters, there's nothing. I mean, it's a little miniature passing the Bechtel test. Um, it, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, but also, I mean, this is, again, 70s science fiction where, um, um, you know, there's all kinds of, of gender politics in the air, um, you know, including um, the idea of reducing genders, uh, of having, you know, amorphous sexuality. Um, so there's definitely a hint of that there. Although I think that if he had Kane as, as, as a woman, that the chest bursting scene would have played very differently. You'd get all sorts of ideas and unwanted intimations of birth of birth and that, i think that, we get those anyways <laughs> I, I know but but it would be even more, it would be it would, it would lean that into maybe a little bit too much i think ah yeah. and it, i think he's pretty specific. amazing i mean yeah. as, when lambert is attacked right we see that that tail yeah. and it's sneaking behind her right and yeah. it's like holy shit this is this is overtly sexual but it also speaks to the fact that it's overtly biological so that it's not that the alien really wants to have sex with you he needs you or it needs you to perform its sex and so it's kind of like 
even worse. <laughs> it's 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 the scariness of sex, the scariness of biology, and thinking about. Uh, hey man, how 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 does it feel to be pregnant? Well, it makes Cain very hungry. It needs your. It's about reproduction, um, not not eroticism. Right, right. And in fact, when is um, Octavia Butler's Blood Child? Um, nineteen eighty six. Little, little later, yeah. Yeah. Which which has that idea? Oh God, of, yeah, yeah. Oh God, that's that story made me squirm when I read it first. Read well, there I didn't read. Nice I didn't read. I didn't read. Not nice, but they're I, nicer. I, I didn't read uh, Butler for a few years afterwards. After that story, it's like, oh, I don't want to touch this author. Yeah. <laughs> I do. If we're going to talk about um, gender roles, if we're talking about antecedents, I do have to put in a plug for the completely bonkers Italian sci-fi film that Alien shamelessly steals from the awesomely titled planet of the vampires. I also watched that one and <laughs> you're right. It is also very well tied into what we, Has what we get in this movie. No, you all should, you all should. It, it's surprisingly good <laughs> for a movie I've never heard of. Yeah. I've never heard of it. I'll check it out. So the director is the uh, classic Italian director, Mario Bava. Um, who did a lot of great horror films, a lot of really impressive exploitation films. Um, I mean, he's just a, a Black Sunday is his most famous, which I strongly recommend. Um, but Planet of the Vampires is, I mean, tell me when this starts to sound familiar. You get a crew from uh, of humans in a spaceship that lands on this deserted planet, which is covered in fog. Um, and they uh, they stomp around and find a grounded alien spaceship, which includes, among other things, the skeleton of a giant alien in it. What? Oh yeah. Oh. But because it's 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 Baba, you get things like uh, all the you can tell the vampires are vampires because they're covered in plastic sheeting. Uh, why? Just don't ask. Um, <laughs> it means when they're in space, where they have something like space madness, and they all like go berserk. I mean, it's it's so in many ways awful and brilliant at the same time um but that 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 classic scene of the navigator um is right there shot for shot um the way the way uh ridley scott directed that or staged that is actually quite brilliant um the uh it's not that big uh they got kids um little kids wearing spacesuits to walk around um so that's what made you the perspective makes it look vast (laughs) so um, and the costumes are amazing. I, I figured uh, with the way their costumes were, they they have these like I don't know lapels that go up their necks and right up to the, the their ears, and then they've got these helmets that can go down. And so the only part of their body that's exposed is just their face. But just walking around in their suits, the, these lapels go up their cheeks and cover their ears and mostly cover their necks. I'm like, what are these? Uh, they're they're trying to shield themselves from neck bites, but that's not the kind of vampires we're, we've actually got. But the, the 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 color in this color film, as opposed to it, the terror from beyond space, which is incredibly black and white. <laughs> the color is so uh, lurid. It's everything is purple and yellow and red and black. It's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's very visually, very visually striking and and impressive. And the gender, the gender play in that is is completely bonkers. You get like women shrieking, freaking out, people punching each other. I mean, it's it's it's, 
Uh, <clears throat> Sounds great. The script, the script doesn't make as much sense as one would like, um, but it, it it certainly has the power. And that's a scene that's missing uh, from the book, right? The space jockey is not in it, as far as I could tell. Yeah, it's not at all. No, but guess what? It is in the 76 version of the script. So Dan O'Bannon wrote it in, and then it was taken out at some uh, point. Back in. And then Ridley put it back in, yeah. That's interesting. I think it's important. I think it's really important. And I think the ending in the book is bad uh, for giving us too much detail about what's going on and what the plan, how the aliens got there. Because um, that that part of the haunted house, the, the haunted spaceship there, is it's it just sits in your mind. Right. And it sits there and it, it says this is and it is not explained. Right. Is it one of the lines in the movie is um, uh, it, it seems to be growing out of the chair, right? Yeah. That is not explicable if they're just aliens wandering around with spacesuits. Well, that's one of the things that's so fascinating about this is this gives us the biomechanical idea mm-hmm. in in visual SF, and you know you get the um, the alien at the at the end of the coda scene in the uh, shuttle who was able to blend into the machinery so seamlessly um, and you get the I mean it's um, there's a painting that Giger did uh, which was supposedly supposed to be included in the film and never showed up and it may have been copied in one of the lunatic sequels like um, Aliens versus Predator or something um, but it was supposed to be a, a religious icon of the life cycle of the alien. It was a kind of giant pyramid and the very top was the egg and the very bottom was the, um, you know, full formed alien. You could follow its uh, life cycle. Uh, this is from the 76 script. Yeah. It's in there. Yeah. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Uh, cause it's really, it's really clear. I mean, it tells you what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's geeker, it just looks awesome. Uh, but that, that blending of, of machine and metal, it, it's so, okay. Since the 79, scroll forward to the 1990s and then you get biomechanical showing up in a friendly way like in um, uh in the underrated um uh tv series oh what's it called the uh, jim henson studios puppets um farscape what? farscape oh. yeah or in uh in the criminally underrated very great babylon 5 series where you get biomechanical technology and it's just part of life it's just comfortable but so, who are you not? thinking of in in Babylon Five? Uh, the Vorlons, or yeah, yeah, the Vorlons. Mm. Yeah. And the uh, you know here in '79, it's just it's unsettling. It's not what you expect. No, it's yeah. truly alien. That's that's the great part about it, right? So uh, I was thinking about the title. <laughs> it's not the alien, right? And it's the sequel is called Aliens. It's not the aliens, right? So. Is it a noun or is it an adjective? <laughs> Normally, we just don't think about it because it's a title, so it's just a noun. But actually, alien uh, as a title works better um, because it, again, doesn't tell you what is going on, right? Yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 speaking of uh, sequels, did you know there was a 1980 sequel called Alien 2? <laughs> Crazy. No. Um, it, no. I saw that on the Earth. And it was just an exp- you know, they're taking on the uh, the title, not really related. So it's not like a sequ- a proper legitimate uh, sequel. And yet, um, I was thinking about why uh, the other day somebody was 
saying talking trash about the the things i think it was called the 2011 quote-unquote remake of the thing um y'all seen that movie yeah yeah you mean the, yeah, wait, the, the, no it's not a remake the, the quote-unquote prequel one yes it is a prequel and the reason that film works is the same re- reason that aliens works because aliens is redoing everything that worked in alien the reason that the things work is because they're redoing everything that worked in the thing. It, it, it's it's astounding to me that this isn't more of a prevalent concept in in remakes. It's it's literally redoing everything so that the uh, it has this circularity, right? So that Ellen is forever on this trip. She's forever, and that's why why when she kills herself in the third movie, I think it's the third movie she kills herself. I can't remember. Um, she's trying yeah, to she the actress is trying to escape, right? This endless cycle. She, she looks so satisfied when she dies. She's like, oh, finally. It's like, in, <laughs> like in, yeah, it's like in the great great bad movie Caligula when the actor John Gilgood dies. He he just looks so happy. Like, I'm out. <laughs> finally, <laughs> but I escape. Uh, I know. I I I do want to. It's uh, Sisyphean, right? That's the thing, right? Pushing it's, the rock it, up the it, hill forever. It, exactly, and and having it's, this uh, horrible uh, excitement and anticipation and 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 horror, right? The same horror that she brings to saving Newt is the same horror that she brings to saving Jonesy. I was thinking that why the cat was named Jones is is Davy Jones, right? It's it's another sea metaphor. Um, it's also a generic name. I, I read a thing, uh, uh, an interview with um, Alan Dean Foster, and he said, you know, he said in the initial drafts they killed the cat, and uh, yeah, he said that. that he complained about it, and and they, they couldn't kill the cat. <laughs> <laughs> so they, Thank so, goodness. Well, there you go. Yeah. Jones is the best. Save the cat. <laughs> Save yeah. the cat. That's so true. Yeah. And that becomes a whole like. Thing for screenwriters, right? That, yeah, like, that's what I was going for. Yeah, yeah. And of course, cats are predators, right? That's uh, that's the other thing. I mean, it, it's there supposedly to kill the mice or the rats that are on the ship. Um, you know, ship's cat is a sort of standard thing, but the fact that the the alien predator on board the ship is killing all the mice is the humans, right? The ten little Indians, that, or I guess it's seven. Uh, or six, depending on how you count, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, running around the ship, killing them, and 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 it's not that it's taking pleasure; it's just what they do, right? And toying mm-hmm. with them in a certain way. Um, there's a kind of uh, strange feeling when you see the cat looking at the alien and the alien looking at the cat, and they both got their teeth bared and hissing, right? Love that. It's, that's also, I mean, one of the upsetting things about the about the um, film is that it gives you this sense of humans not being at the top of the food chain. Right. That mm-hmm. we get to meet an apex predator who is more apex than us. And so, in a sense, the cat, you know, domesticated is a stand-in for us. Um, you know, that's kind of the best we can hope for. And, and the fact that uh, it all goes back to, you know, what are they doing there, right? They're all just trying to make a living, right? They're all except for one of them. One of them is there for the pure science, right? Well, and, he's not there for the pure science. He's there because the company told him to go. I mean, that's I, I, true. I, 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 but his motivation is he's actually literally interested in what's going to happen. He's yeah, that, that changes. In interest. 
Right. I think it's different in different versions. And some he's all about the science, and some he's. I, I had completely forgotten for the company. Ian Holm had played Ash in the original movie. It's like, oh, like, oh my God, Bilbo is the bad guy. It's fantastic. <laughs> and, if, and, if you want, uh, you should see him in the uh, in the awesome food movie called Big Night, where he plays uh, an Italian food entrepreneur. Um, oh, it was just, I mean, Ian Holm can do anything. I've, I've, never, I've never seen it. But one thing I didn't like about the book as opposed to the movie is the book gives away that Ash is not what he is earlier. And I, I don't, think, I don't, I think, I think he does a pretty good job of hiding it. I mean, no, no, I, but, I, the, but, the, but the book doesn't. It's like, it's like, wait a minute, you're giving it away. That's it's a, that's a big thing at it. I don't think, I don't think he says it. I mean, yes, he, he says it, he would have made the best dreamer, right? No, that's, no, no, that's, no, 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 not that early, but later on, it's like, it's like a couple of chapters before you find out in Android, it says like, it mentions the fact that it, of course, Ash was of course not human. It's like, wait, what? It's like, why are you telling us that? I don't remember that. I don't remember it saying. Oh, uh, that's that's bad. I don't remember it being that explicit. I I, I remember it was hinted at for sure. Mm-hmm. I think, but, yeah. think, this isn't this isn't that sinister. I mean, think about one of the highest paying jobs in the U.S. is petroleum engineer. Um, True. The, you know, these guys are. You know, you've got a bunch of roughnecks. You've got a manager. You've got a bunch of you know people who do different functions, and one of them is the is does science. I mean, that's just. It's par for the course. I, I do want to come back to one more uh, gothic theme, if I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's something I keep I keep wrestling with here. One of the one of the perpetual themes of gothic, and this shows up in visual design in particular, uh, is death and decay. Uh, in many ways, the gothic is kind of a celebration of entropy. Um, every you know, gothic stories end with less energy in the system, you know, fewer people. Uh, fewer objects, you know, houses are blown up and not replaced. The mm. castle is torn down. Um, the beautiful city now decays, uh, or it starts off decaying and just gets worse. And you know, re- the house of Usher, that's what that ship is on LV 26 or whatever. Acheron collapses into the tarn at the end. Right. Uh, and so, you know, you do the same thing in alien. That's one of the Gothic echoes in the sequel is, you know, you lose a lot of the characters. You don't save the, uh, civilians and you blow up more of the ships and the colony is gone and there's no there's nothing positive it's not a positive sacrifice that gives you something that's a net good um and alien is the same way we have one human survive the ship with all that wealth i mean that was an extraordinary amount of capital is all gone um you know and the alien the engine what becomes known as the engineers the you know the alien species they don't grow as a result of this um i mean it's just downward slope uh, negation um but what what i struggle with is what's against that is the viral promise of the alien um it's like you know any vampire story where they're predators who destroy but they also spawn and reproduce so that's the great threat that you know the uh, alien could come to earth and then take over so I, I wonder i mean is this is this ultimately an entropy story where things decline and decay uh, or is there the promise of some kind of potential horrible, thriving alien life form? <laughs> All yeah. you become aliens in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, I mean, going back to Prometheus, I mean, that's, I mean, that the the, the bio weapon had been Alicia on Earth would basically have done that. So, right, I, I think right. it's made explicit in that movie that that's that's what could happen. I want to read from. The script for Aliens, 
Um, th- this scene is literally in uh, Alien as well. It's just the characters are slightly different, but Ripley's in the exact same position. Um, so Vasquez says, all right, we've got seven canisters of CN20. I say we roll them in there and nerve gas the whole fucking nest. Hicks, that's worth a try, but we don't know if it's going to affect them. Hudson, let's just bug out and call it even, okay? <laughs> what are we even talking about? So I guess Hudson is the... Um, uh, what's the character who always says? Right. <laughs> that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's the Great. top relief. Yeah. Um, uh, Hudson, uh, Ripley says, <laughs> I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> Hudson. Fucking A. Burke. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Hold on a second. This installation has a substantial value, dollar value attached to it. Right? That He's the company man. That company relationship, that is actually the true enemy, right? And wh- what's funny is they, they say it in both movies, right? Uh, or at least in one of the, in the book. Um, uh, you don't see them stabbing each other in the back uh, for a goddamn percentage, uh, right? The fact that Ash uh, is the hand of the company that put them in this position and doesn't care about them Um and the fact that uh, Burke is in that same, again, a name of resonance, right? Uh, Ash also has a, another <laughs> kind of uh, appropriate for uh, recording on Easter, I guess. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that the, the, the true enemy is not the alien. It's our own sort of worst nature. Our, and, our own greed. I mean, it's made clear in the movie again and again that if Ash hadn't intervened and done things the alien would have been bented out and everybody would not have died right mm-hmm. and and the cow you know dallas he, he's a manager but he's not on he's not on the corporation's team when it comes to keeping people alive right he's he's willing to do what the corporation says as long as you know it's 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 okay but well, that's why that's why Ash acts like the alien because the company's like the alien. They are the right, expert, right. and, and we're all part of it, right? That's the scary part. So it's, the story, the story the companies say is that they actually build net gains. This is why you've got the you know, Schumpeter's idea of creating destruction that you know, yeah. we just grow and grow. But the vision of Alien is is an entropic one that it's that it, 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 it destroys things. It ends up with a. Uh, a desolate planet like the um, the one they pick up the aliens from. Uh, speaking of greed, if, if I could just put in a plug, there's uh, an Indian movie that uh, just hit the U.S. called Tumbad, uh, T-U-M-B-B-A-D. Uh, it's marketed as a horror film, but I don't really think it is. It's, um, it's a fantasy about... Uh, uh, capturing a demon for wealth, and it's a, it's a pretty strict story about... Um, about greed, and it's extremely well done. Um, it, it's actually called Tumbad, T-U-M-B-B-A-D. Yeah, uh, I, f- I found it on uh, Amazon, um, and uh, you know, you don't. Uh, Wikipedia calls it a period horror film, which is mm-hmm. a, but, uh, but yeah, it's all about about the the terror of money, which brings us back to Conrad and. Uh, oh yeah. I, I I I was also thinking about uh, Conrad's. You know, Conrad gets very little shout out except in the name of the ship, and then the Sulaco, right, is the uh, the name of the ship in the second movie again, paralleling everything. But 
Uh, there's a story called, <laughs> probably the most famous sh- short story by Conrad. It's called The Secret Sharer. Yeah. And they're all talking yeah. about shares on board the ship until, you know, <laughs> suddenly, guess what? There's another guy on board. You don't know about him yet, but he's going to he's gonna get the full share. Oh, my. Uh, it, it, the, I think the literary roots of this story are substantial. And they're not fully captured by all the films or even, uh, you know, A. Van Vaught. It, or, or Lovecraft. Dan O'Bannon actually, he's responsible for a lot of great film scripts. You guys know this, right? Uh, I, I mean, I was, was what I didn't get a chance to rewatch Dark Star, but okay. So yeah, that's the thing is Dark Star is kind of a, a it's, uh, this, it's kind of this story as well, except as a comedy, and I don't think it works very well because it aliens as a comedy or alien as a comedy isn't as good as as alien as a, a gothic horror science fiction story and a fucking hard science fiction. I love the amount of detail that you see in the book that is shown in the movie, right? The amount of detail of, of the language that they use to describe just the landing sequence, that whole landing sequence at the beginning of the movie takes forever. Yeah. Right. Um, I saw an analysis of the movie Aliens uh, as an action film, and uh, the editor who uh, has a YouTube channel talks about he's a film editor talked about how it's not an action film. If you think of how Aliens works, there's no action until quite late in the film, right? There's lots of dread, there's lots of setup, there's lots of uh, talk, there's lots of um, uh, sitting around and and talking about what 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 could be going on, but um, I was just reminded that's that, that mess hall scene. Um, military film. That's why it's it's true. But the mess hall scene in both films, they talk about the exact same things. They talk about cornbread. That's the cornbread, right? This right. is a very uh, it's like a Last Supper sort of thing <laughs> before they all go and uh, do what they got to do. Well, the mess, hall, the mess hall is where um, uh, is where uh, John Hurt's character gets erupted from, um, which does lead to the best line in the entire movie, which all nobody else laughs at except me. It's when you know the 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 man is laid down on the table screaming in agony, and his chest is you know pulsating, and one of the guys says, "Oh come on, man, the food's not that, that bad." <laughs> <laughs> it's very dark humored. Right. Did you guys know as well that none of the actors knew that was going to happen to him? They made it all like super secretive and like rigged the whole thing mm. without telling anyone. So when he exploded, it was genuine shock on all their faces. And really? some of them were like, yeah, some of them were like traumatized by it. <laughs> I can see that. Like Blair Witch, right? Right, wow. yeah, yeah. Lam- the original Blair Lambert is, is so good as her character. She apparently was going to be Ripley. Um, and knowing that you know Ripley survives the film, it's a much bigger role. Mm. Uh, but she's so good in reaction. Um, she's she's a, a sort of one of those untold scream scream queens, right? Because nobody thinks of the actress. I don't I don't even know who the actress's name is, but she Cart, Cartwright. Uh, somebody Cartwright. Okay, Veronica. Is it Veronica? Yeah. Cartwright. Okay. Um, she she's just so good in reaction in that scene, but also in the scene where uh, the aliens creeping up on her and she's frozen, right? 
she's frozen and uh parker says you know get out of the way get out of the way and she, she just she's totally frozen and the the horror that's on her face <laughs> everybody's destroyed but she's she's perfect for that it's it's super iconic yeah she's great i don't think there's a i don't think there's a fault anywhere in the film at all it's so good I haven't seen it in so long, as I said, and I regret that because, yeah, it really, really, really works. I mean, here I am gripping the edge of my seat watching this, having read the book by audio not a couple of days before. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, here it comes. Yeah. And can you well, imagine seeing this when it came out in theaters? Like, all the reaction stuff that I saw in those documentaries I watched, people were saying, like, ushers were fainting, people were leaving the cinema to vomit. Yeah, like, I first saw it on, on TV, so those commercials and breaks and everything. So, yeah, I can't can't imagine not see, seeing this in a theater for the first time. Oh, my God. Yeah. And be- people were moving to the back of the cinemas because they didn't want to sit at the front. You know, like they wanted to watch it, but couldn't be that close to the screen. Am I the only one who saw it the opening weekend? I was I was a baby. <laughs> I was seven years oh, old. Oh, you did? What I, was, I was it eight, like? I was not seeing movies yet. Um, I was, uh, let's see, I was 15. No, excuse me. I was um, 12. It was May 1979. Wow. And uh, I saw it with my parents, and my parents freaked out. They blanked and looked <laughs> away. Uh, I remember people, like, running from the uh, theater a few times. I uh, wish I could see that. No yeah. one reacts like that anymore. <laughs> Well, it, it, it was a simpler time, Marissa. Yeah. It depends. I remember. I mean, I'm I'm the kind of you know horror film um, person who's always like chuckling at the right scenes when nobody else is laughing, so I'm kind of used to it. But but it was it was shocking visually, and in part because the uh, the ad campaign for it was so mysterious. The only ads were. He's a chicken egg. I mean, come on. It's a it's it doesn't look anything like the egg <laughs> in the movie, right? In fact, the posters are really lame. And and even the trailers are really lame but because it is hiding everything from you. It, it is hiding everything, but the, you forget the music, which the music is powerful, dark and ominous. And you're like, what is this? What am I going to see? You know, it was completely uh, upsetting. And um, no, I, I just I, I saw uh, there's a bunch of movies from late '70s and early '80s that I saw in the theater for the first time, and I I, I relish that that I have that sense of impact. I remember seeing Blade Runner opening weekend, and you know what a a vision of, of the future to see. Um, but yeah, Alien was really, that was really, a lot of 70s horror. It was really harsh to watch. Hey, uh, hey Jesse, mm-hmm. have you ever read the, the C.L. Moore and Harry Cutton story, Vintage Season? Um, I don't it's think a, it's, a, it's about It's about a, about a time travelers who go to various events, at, but it's actually focused on the people whose event, they don't realize an event is coming and these time travelers have shown up. And at one point they go to a move, they go to a theater to watch a couple of movies. I was just thinking time travelers going to opening weekends of classic films to get that <laughs> sort of reaction. And we also should totally do vintage season as a, as a, as a episode if we can find an audio mm. of them. If you mm. haven't, if you ever never heard it before, then we should do that. You should put it yeah, on. Yeah, sounds schedule. good. I'd like that. Thank you. Uh, I I want to go through uh, Dan O'Bannon's list of stuff here because. He, he he's worked on other things, but here's here's uh, just a few other things, right? Uh, so, Alien, 1979, Blue Thunder, 1983. I watched this not that long. I think it was late last year. You guys um, seen this movie? I remember yeah. Blue Thunder. Yeah. So it, it, I think it got sort of spawned into a TV show briefly, and there, it sort of there was a whole helicopter genre, 
you know, there was a t- car genre on TV where a show would be built around a car. You even see it in things like Magnum PI, where you know the car is one of the characters on the show. Um, but there was a brief helicopter show phase, right? And uh, yep. So, yeah, so Air- Vincent Airwolf. was the one. Airwolf, yeah. Airwolf, right? But Blue Thunder is really subversive because it's about it's really interesting to see. It's about surveillance. It's about it's sure it's a helicopter with guns and stuff, but the important part is they use it to spy on everybody, listening into people's conversations. It's very innovative and interesting. It, it it's not a great movie, uh, but it's got Roy Scheider and it's worth watching and it it's got lots to think about. Um, then one of my favorite movies that nobody likes, also based on a uh, on a book called Space Vampires. Um, is Life Force, a 1985 movie, which is an invasion of the Earth by vampires, essentially. Um, he did uh, work on The Return of the Living Dead. Um, but which 1990, is a great, great zombie movie. It's the zombie yeah. punk musical film. It's so good. Oh, man. 1990, co-writer on Total Recall. Mm. And uh, 1995, Screamers, which we did a show on. Uh, the Philip K. Dick story, um, Second Variety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, I, I, I think even though it's kind of a schlocky film, I think it's actually very, very thoughtful and, and pretty good. Um, and then another one that I'm hoping to do a show on the book of this summer, uh, Bleeders, 1997 film. I haven't watched it yet. Probably terrible. But mm-hmm. it's an adaptation of The Lurking Fear by H.P. Lovecraft. Really? So... This guy had a, a pretty substantial film career. You know, he, he wrote a couple segments of Heavy Metal, uh, the 1981 uh, animated film. And um, I, uh, I think that there are benefits to reading a lot of science fiction when you're young, if you want to become a screenwriter. Because this guy has a lot of skill. Mm. Well, just uh, just as you know, uh, on IMDb, Leaders has a 3.8 reading. Yeah, no, it's it's not it's not highly recommended. But I, I noticed a lot of um, really low-rated movies are are actually pretty good. <laughs> um, uh, a lot of them are not good, but um, people people like can get triggered by stuff, and I think the opposite is pretty much true by. Um, if if you get if you sat through the entirety of Alien, I don't think that you can give it a bad rating. I think, uh, except I noted, and I don't know if you guys noted this on the Wikipedia entry, it talks about critical reception, and um, all the professional reviewers pretty much didn't like it. Really? Of course. And wow. and later on, when they make their their. Um, their professional review, uh, go looking back at stuff. They always change their review to match sort of the current aesthetic, which is, oh, it is a good movie. <laughs> so Roger wow. Eber, Gene Siskel, you know, they'll give it an okay rating or it's not great. <laughs> and then later on, looking back at the top 100 movies or whatever, they always add it to their list and reconsider it. And I think that, that that's a, that's a problem for a lot of reviewers. A, a way of looking at of at material is I'm comparing it to other things. I'm comparing it to what I think it should be doing, what it isn't. And 
this is just a movie that is perfect for a young person because it doesn't tell you, uh, you know, how to review it. It just presents itself and says, look at me. Aren't I horrific? And you say, oh, God, yes, it's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're looking at it as, you know, just another movie that you need to review, I don't think that uh, y- y- this is why I, I shied away from reviewing a lot of stuff because I felt that tendency in myself to not be clear about the the wonders that some things present to you irrespective of what you bring to judging them. Mm-hmm. It's a real substantial film. Um, yeah, I can't imagine sitting through it and feeling all that suspense and like all the beautiful shots and, and all that stuff and it's still coming out of it and not thinking that it was like it's such an amazing experience. Like <laughs> I can't yeah. imagine that. Well, I think of you can also think of it like how people who follow politics for a living, right, mm-hmm. are always basically wrong about everything, right? They're because they're so close to the wrong things that they've been looking at it for so long that they see everything in a, a certain jaded way. Yeah. And you know, that's not a good political calculation, right? By doing that, that's going to hurt them. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. You, you're not feeling the temperature of reality, right? Mm. Um, and that that per, uh, sort of foolish professionalism, right? It, it, it invades everything, right? Academia, Brian, <laughs> um, Evan, it invades academia and and... It's why, you know, somebody doing something that isn't uh, this. I, I teach this to my students. I say, you you need to know if you want to get a good mark more than anything, you need to know what they want. If you know what they want, you can get a good mark. But mm-hmm. if you don't know what you what they want, you have no idea what you're just hoping. So you just need to spend all the time trying to figure out if you want a good mark, what the hell they want. And once you have that. Right? There's going to be triggers for them. They're going to, they have a model in their mind of what, the, what needs to be there. Because professionally, you've you got to go through so many, material, so many of these things that you, you have to sort of blind yourself to being open to things. And it's dangerous. Mm. I think there's, I mean, this is also, right, the corpor- corporatism is kind of in there too because it, you invest in a company and you don't know how it's operating, but somebody's making a decision somewhere along the line that's going to help you make money. And if you don't care enough to look into those details, then it costs people's lives. It it costs uh, a lot of pain for a lot of people in a lot of places. I don't, I don't know what the solution to this, but it's a very complex issue. The, face, the faceless agents of the company. Right? The inhuman agents of the company, i.e. Ash. Yeah, uh, the corporate, but the corporation, right? It, it can't care. It can't love. It can only do, it's like the, it's, it's perfect. Just like the monster, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it can't, it can't, it can't, but do what it does, which is go around creative destruction. I Jesse, guess. you admire it, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> he admires his purity. I yeah. <laughs> around, the, around ten years ago, I showed the movie to my kids, and um, 
it was interesting because they're they're both very huffy about what they think of as older movies. They're like, you know, they immediately begin like, oh god, that looks so old. And, you know, when when they see the computer screens which have like what five lines of text, they're like, oh my god. <laughs> but then they got into it and they were terrified by it. But um, but one of our they named one of our cats Ash. Um, so it's uh. Oh, yeah. that's, was, that's the, a character I identify with, though. It's the fluffiest, nicest cat we have. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I think, you know. That's what she wants me to think. Of. <laughs> but you know, one, of the, one of the things that I really admire about this movie, too, is that it's um, a great example of a hard genre to pull off, but one that is pretty persistent, which is blending horror and science fiction. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was looking at... Uh, Articles that on um, ripoffs of Alien and uh, imitations of Alien, and it's interesting to see how that keeps rippling out. You get um, misfire movies like Event Horizon. Mm. I like Event Horizon. I know Me it's too. not perfect. <laughs> I know there are issues, I, I, but it's also because they cut they cut hell hell out of out of the movie, and we don't get to see like thirty minutes of the film. And the, there the are movie. things to like about it, but, but it, yeah, it is yeah. not it is not. I have a it's not, not in the same category as this film. No. But go did ahead, Brian. Get... I didn't mean to interrupt. But I had to did, anybody... did anyone ever release a director's cut of it? No, no, because the footage got lost. They found some of the footage in like Romania, but it was beyond usable usability. So the lost footage in Romania does sound like the start of the movie, but um, I mean, there's there's you, know, you see this in video games like Dead Space and in, oh uh, god. Halo. I could, not, I could not. I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. I, Dead Space terrified the crap out of me. Oh, nice, nice. Paul is our Veronica Cartwright character. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, Halo, uh, the classic video game Halo, begins that way with a nice blend of you know of sheer mm-hmm. horror and um, it's it's more aliens than alien, but um, you get that theme. Um, Mass Effect. So some mass, some some things in Mass Effect, Mass Effect Two and Three are very horror based. There's there's uh, one there's one DLC in Mass Effect Three that is very Lovecraftian horror and very very squeaky. Which one? What's it called? Oh, oh crap! I can't remember it off the name of it. I know MJ Jefferson was running through it when she was running through Mass Effect Three. It was, Let me know if you see it because I like the game, but I never played any of the DLCs for it. So did anyone play Alien Isolation? Since we're talking uh, about no, sequels. but didn't they, didn't they bring all the actors back for that? Yeah, I tried it out um, on Friday night. There's a DLC called Crew Expendable, which has the full cast back. So, um, and it's kind of amazing because they had access to all, all of the um, like shots of the set design and footage mm. from that weren't in the movies. Mm. So they recreated the whole set for the game. Um, and it, yeah, it was pretty fun, but honestly, I guess this is that experience that I was missing from watching it in the theaters, mm. um, is that it was so terrifying that I just couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't explore as much as I wanted to because it was making my heart race too much. <laughs> if it was a VR game, I think it might've killed you. I was playing it in VR. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so, What system was it? HTC Vive or Octopus? Uh, no, just on the PlayStation 4. Oh, nice. Yeah. But yeah, hearing the like when you're crawling through the air ducts and stuff, and you can hear the alien <laughs> footsteps coming, I was just like, I can't play this. <laughs> Maybe there if was, I have a few beers first. Back in the day, there was a <laughs> mod for uh, Doom that replaced uh, all the sounds and weapons and the monsters with Alien, 
or aliens, I guess. That was. <laughs> really? Yeah. And that so the way Doom was distributed, right? It was kind of like a uh, a hidden, you know, you don't, you didn't get you didn't buy it at the store. You got a copy from somebody else, and uh, it was a shareware product, right? And then this was a shareware product that plugged into that shareware product, so it was like it was the doubly hidden thing. And then when you get it installed and you're playing it in the, really late at night, man, that game scared the fuck. Out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, buying the DLC for Mass Effect Three, I was thinking of as Leviathan. Oh, great! Thank you. Yep. There's a, that 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 could have been another name for the movie in a certain sense, right? I mean, it's not a giant, but it certainly has a giant presence. And also, a, also that sort of ancient evil sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You guys like your um, your uh, Event Horizon movie, the um, the hero's ship in the Mass Effect series reproduces the engine design, so you can. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I've played all the Mass Effects. Yeah, it's a great series of games. But, um, you know, it's it's fun. I has there been anything in print that lately that really combines science fiction and horror well? I mean, I'm, I know the expense. He does a bit of that, but I haven't, I haven't read it yet. But uh, just just you and I talked about this on one of our uh, new releases. There's a there's a aliens and caves on an alien planet movie called a book called The Luminous Dead by Caitlin Starling. Mm-hmm. It's on my reading pile because I've gotten a review copy. So that seems sounds to be like the descent on an on, on an, an alien, alien planet. Yeah. Oh, What's it called again? The Luminous Dead by Caitlin Starling. Thank you. It's a nice title. Mm-hmm. It's got a great it's, cover. It's too. got a great cover too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I feel uh, very fagged out from uh, all of this um, running around these starship decks with you guys. Wow. <laughs> Lie down in the uh, sleep chamber. I'm gonna go eject myself. <laughs> I go to sleep for a while. Hopefully, somebody will pick me up Don't when, do I that. when you reach the frontier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty. It, it's exhausting, right? It, it feels like a workout. This movie, the book, uh, the book is um, it's eight hours, so there's a lot of um, description of things. But I, I want to read before we wrap up. I want to read the opening. I think it's good. Um, I, I don't think Alan Dean Foster is the most amazing writer, but he seems really good at d- doing novelizations. That 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 um, that is what he was. Is he still alive? He was is he known is, for. I, I mean that that that's his jam. I mean there was even a comic in Dragon Magazine where they were talking about oh getting your book sold and and there's this producer guy saying, but baby Alan Dean Foster does all our novelization. So yeah, it it was a yeah. cliche thirty years mm. ago and still cliche mm. now. I feel like he's well, especially at the start of the book. I really I thought wow, this is really good. He's it is opening. He's doing it. Opens yeah, but. Yeah, but speaking of like entropy and stuff, I feel like it just disintegrated, and like by the end of it, there were so many things that were bugging me with his writing. Like, he, I was he did it. To in, edit it. He, he did it in three weeks. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Where did you find that out? Wow. <laughs> let me let me read the first uh, first page. I could do it. Chapter one. Seven dreamers. You must understand that they were not professional dreamers. Professional dreamers are highly paid, respected, much sought-after talents. Like the majority of us, these seven dreamt without effort or discipline, dreaming professionally so that one's dreams can be recorded and played back for the enti- entertainment of others is much more demanding. Ah, much more demanding proposition. It requires the ability to regulate semi-conscious creative impulses and to stratify imagination. 
an extraordinarily difficult combination to achieve. A professional dreamer is simultaneously most organized of all artists and most spontaneous, a subtle weaver of speculation, not straightforward and clumsy like you or I, or these certain seven sleepers. So actually, he's talking about writing novelizations, isn't he? Yes. <laughs> isn't that <laughs> he is, He's a professional dreamer, as opposed to the unprofessional dreamers, the ones who don't write for novelizations for a living. Didn't, you, uh, didn't he do a Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the Star Wars? I know that that was done. Was that by him? Uh, yeah, that was interesting because it was a sequel to Star Wars before Empire, right? And, uh, it, and it never got filmed. Oh. Yes, yes, he did do it. Yes. Yeah, see, years of working at a bookstore gave me all kinds of bizarre knowledge. But... I looked at uh, the Goodreads for the book, um, and I noted the first uh, – it's got very positive reviews. Um, yeah. The first guy, uh, the highest person to review it, you know, the, on the top, I don't know, most helpful, whatever it is, he told That's a story. Great. Yeah, uh, told a story about how he ended up reading it, and I think a lot of people ended up reading these books the exact same way. Um, the book I read was Predator. It was not by Alan Dean Foster, but it, it follows his story exactly. You go to the movie theater with your family, and they reject you uh, because you're too young. <laughs> you're too young for this scary movie. So you go to the W.H. Smith's or whatever bookstore it is that's in the mall, and you get the copy of the book and read it out of spite. <laughs> <laughs> you say, I have seen this film sort of because I need to see it. It calls to me and I've been denied. Yeah. Uh, this is the, this is the power of books to me is, is that they're less censorable and in a way, you know, that's the power of the printing press, right? And it's why I love pirate Bay so much is no matter how much somebody wants to suppress something, somebody can put it out there for you you to yeah. get and see and 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 experience that which is being denied you. Yeah, I remember that like spending so much time in secondhand bookstores when I was a kid and my parents being like, Oh, well that's so great. She wants to read. You know, she wants to learn stuff. And I was just like buying every serial killer book and horror book and like all this stuff. Like <laughs> that's what they I was doing. Right. They were right. You were reading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's definitely helpful, um, yeah. but yeah, it, the motivation can be strange, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I see it as a, it's a, it's a way to avoid the censorship of parents and society. That's what really burns me. It's not that my mom or my uncle or whoever it is is saying you can't watch it. It's that society as a whole has dis- determined. And notice that it's not even the government, right? In the case of film. It's a ratings board. It's it's censorship by companies that get together as a cartel and say, in order to avoid censor, uh, this is how comic the Comics Code Authority worked too, right? So the government threatens something that would be illegal if they actually did it, which is censorship. And so the companies get together in a cartel and then censor each other, um, coming up with a system to prevent some people from accessing stuff. Uh, I feel like that's the way the internet's going, right? We're going to get a consortium between Facebook and Twitter and a couple other places and they're all uh, YouTube and they're all going to agree that certain things are unacceptable. And then 
how do we fight that? I, I think we just get crushed like the the crew. Mm. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, I, I don't see an escape. No. Thoughts about this, but they go way beyond alien. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm going to run out of time. We, uh, You'll appreciate this. We're all going to go see a horror movie for uh, Easter. Nice. Uh, oh, great. Yeah. Um, nice. So let uh, need to head off for that. But thank you all for uh, talking about Alien. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, that was so fun. I love this story. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, great. Thank you, Jesse. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 